Once again, we are trying to see the New, Co or the new Testament through New Covenant eyes. The second of our test texts is 1 Corinthians 9.21, where we need to see once again the point of the parenthesis there. The law and the New Covenant believer in 1 Corinthians 9.21, or the focus of law, the broader subject, the focus of law in the New Covenant. You will remember I mentioned the paper delivered at the think tank, The Silence of the New Covenant, Fallow Ground. This is another passage where I think it's fallow ground to make the connection that this has something to do with the New Covenant. This is about the New Covenant and more. John's book, In Defense of Jesus, the new lawgiver could have been subtitled or equally as well titled in defense of the new covenant. Remember the parenthesis. As you study these passages, as you read them, I don't know if you ever do this, but it's interesting. Where you see the parentheses, read it without what's within the parentheses there. Just skip right over it without interruption. Put a comma there. Read it that way, then read it with it in there. Try to imagine Paul reading his own letter. How would he have emphasized it? Or, or the, what, what's the point of the punctuation? You look at different translations, you'll see them doing different things. Sometimes brackets, uh, and sometimes in different places. But they know there's an interruption here. They know that this is thrown in, and that it would make perfect grammatical sense, even in translation, without the content that's found between the parentheses. I have a reputation as a collector of knives and a sharpener of knives. I've been asked not to sharpen them as sharp by my daughters, and I think my wife is about ready to. There must be a theological implication in there somewhere. Iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Even though this may be closer to the literal sense of the verse, I pray the Lord may use me today to sharpen more than just your countenance. The English Standard Version, while acknowledging in a footnote the literal sense, Hebrew sharpens the face, the Hebrew reads, sharpens the face of another, translates the verse, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. May each of us be better for having been here together. Now put your new covenant spectacles on. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, may your spirit guide our thinking and our study. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May you illumine our, our minds and give us understanding. Plant your word in our hearts as a seed, and may it bear fruit in the future to your honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, we need to consider the significance of this passage of Scripture. This may be review for some of you, but I can't assume that. Perhaps it goes without saying how significant it is. 
theologically and missiologically. But let me reinforce that for you briefly. Here's a quote. This is perhaps the greatest statement of the situation of the Christian with respect to God's law. That's a mouthful. This is perhaps the clearest statement of the situation of the Christian with respect to God's law. Doug Moo. That's in five views on law and gospel. John Walvoord in a journal article in Bibsack years ago wrote what Paul's doing here, where Paul plays all the strings of the harp in one verse. There's some textual issues here. We're not going to deal with them. Not the time and place. And with Gary George sitting there, I am not going to get into it. I, w I will say this. I will say this. They're interesting issues, but not decisive. And that's often the case. What is the point of this, this parenthesis? What can we do? What should we do? What do we learn here about the focus of law in the New Testament? I want to consider two things. The New Covenant translation of 1 Corinthians 9.21 and the New Covenant theology of 1 Corinthians 9.21. No three points in a poem, just those two. We may get a little bit of a poem later. The vocabulary here where it says under the law. Let's read 1 Corinthians 9.20 and 21 as we begin considering the parenthesis. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law to them that are without law as without law being not without law to God but under the law to Christ that I might gain them that are without law. Gordon Fee refers to this remarkable clause, his words, and adds that it is nearly impossible to put it into simple English. The Wycliffe translation renders it this way. To them that were without law, as I were without law, when I was not without the law of God, but I was in the law of Christ. To win them that were without law, that I should win them that were without law. The Young's literal translation renders it to those without law, as without law, not being without law to God, but within law to Christ, that I might gain those without law. Weymouth, to men without law, as I were without law, although I'm not without law in relation to God, but am abiding in God's law in order to win those who are without law. The English standard, ver the, uh, English standard version goes so far and hesitates at, at, at the edge. I'm going to help them here. <laughs> I'm not going to push them over, but I want, if they'd only gone one step further, here's the way it reads. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. Now I know, and I agree with Gordon Fee, it is, it, it's tough, that's why they struggle with this. 
But if they'd only said, not being outside the law of God, but inside the law of Christ, they'd have had it. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but inside the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. You will find many who will render this in lawed to Christ. And when a translator does that, you have to understand they're struggling here. They're, 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 what that should tell you is there is just no way to grasp in simple English, like Gordon Fee says, what's there? Paul's done something here that is a mine for us to dig into, and the task is not easy. The, this phrase that is translated under the law of Christ, difficult to translate. The NIVs, now this is the quote again, this is Knox Chamblin. And it's amazing to me when I read a man like Knox Chamblin, where he's coming from, that he gets it better than almost anybody. And he's a covenant theologian. Some of the best stuff I've read on this has come from him. I can almost say, and what are you going to do with that? The latter phrase, he says, is difficult to translate. NIV's under Christ's law gives the impression that the underlying preposition is hupo rather than en. A better rendering is that of F.F. F. Bruce in the letters of Paul, I am bound by the law of Christ. In another place he says, Paul never speaks of Christians being under the law. The shift in this verse to the phrase that translated under the law is most significant. Donker in Bauer in the Lexicon, third edition. This is how he renders it. I identified as one outside Mosaic jurisdiction with those outside it. Not, of course, being outside God's jurisdiction, but inside Christ. That's what the ESV should have done. It's right there in Donker. I can go on about this translation issue. If you study the preposition N, by some counts there are more than 2,000 occurrences of the preposition standalone or in compounds. King James as an example, you can go to all the translations and try this, but in the King James there was like two places where it's translated under. And I would tell you that in both places they didn't need to do that and shouldn't have done it. The sense of that preposition is always in or within. Paul intentionally did something here that translating it under obscures. And to me it is not helpful to the English reader when there's something there in the original and the translator doesn't make the utmost effort to make it clear in the translation to the reader. Trans there are translations that can obscure what's there. And it, I'm sorry to see that. But if you study this preposition, you, you will see, and I hope you will agree, that it is not justified, it is never justified to translate it under. That just will not do. And it certainly will not do here. 
There are other passages where you can reference in, in relation to what's here in this passage where Christ and law are put together, where in and law are found together. And the law of Christ, of course, becomes an issue here. But it simply will not do. When Paul takes a prepositional phrase on the one hand with one preposition, meaning under, in reference to the law that they were under. Then speaks of the Gentiles with an alpha privative. In other words, all he does is put the letter A in front of the word, and they're without. So we have a prepositional phrase, we have a compound with the alpha privative, and then we have a compound with the preposition N. Enough of the Greek lesson there. But you've got three different things there. Paul's ringing all the changes. He's not saying the same thing here that he did here. He clearly said under the law here, and to translate it identically here is to miss the point. A new covenant point. There is no under. Get out from under. <laughs> Away with under. You want under? I'll show you under. Just look at verse 20. But it's not here. And now for a word from our sponsor. Pepsodent. Some of you are old enough to remember. You wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent? With all due respect to Bristol Myers or whoever owns that, you'll wonder where the inness went when you translate it like Old Covenant. Let's turn to the theology of 1 Corinthians 9.21. This is not just a translation issue. You've got to get that right. But that is it's not just that. This is a theological crux. Your relationship to the law. This is a special parenthesis. Beyond exegesis. Yeah, I did say that. This is beyond exegesis. If you translate and teach under in this verse, your problem is beyond the exegesis of this passage of Scripture. If you're comfortable with that, this is beyond exegesis. Wrong thinking at this point strikes at the very heart of the New Covenant. It undermines what makes it distinctive. It fails to reckon with what sets it apart from all other biblical covenants and obscures which what makes it what it is. This is the very fabric of the new covenant we're talking about. And, by the same token, the very fabric of the New Testament. Gordon D. Fee, again, he draws attention to the Christological implications of this remarkable disclaimer. Did you get that? the Christological implications. What implications? I'm going to put a name on it for you. Mutual interiority. 
the interiority of the new covenant. Inness. Mutual interiority. It's there in the promises and the prophecies. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. The next chapter of Ezekiel we find and shall put my spirit in you. There is no getting around the essence of the new covenant involved with interiority. It's there in the fulfillment. In Christ. I would recommend to you Knox Chamblin's work, but also A.T. Pearson's little book, In Christ. You don't have to buy it. Public domain, several places on the internet, you put up A.T. Pearson in Christ, you got it, download it, read it. The essence of the New Testament, Paul's writings, it's all about inness, being in Christ, and more than that, Christ in us, the hope of glory, mutual interiority. The silence of the new covenant Trace in Christ and Christ in us and his spirit in us through the New Testament. Don't tell me about the silence of the new covenant or you've got to convince me that in Christ has nothing to do with the new covenant. Christ in us has nothing to do with the new covenant. The spirit in us has nothing to do with the new covenant. You got your work cut out for you. Interiority. Mutual interiority. Mystery. Christ in us the hope of glory. It's there in the fulfillment. Edward Malatesta has written an intriguing, a challenging book, Interiority and Covenant. And he's studying 1 John, developing it in 1 John. Do you ever see the new covenant in 1 John? You need to see the, first, the new covenant in 1 John. It's part of the New Testament, isn't it? It's there. He saw it. Sad thing is, he's a Roman Catholic. Isn't it funny he saw it? Some other people need to get with the program. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And in John 17, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that they hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, 
that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. There is no getting away from this issue of interiority being essential to the new covenant. You want to single out something. What makes it new? What makes it unique? You need to have this as part of that package. Do not allow the Pauline emphasis on interiority to be swept under the theological carpet either by a failure to translate the distinctive shift in prepositions or by neglecting the theological implications of this contrast. Roy Aldrich wrote in Bibsack a while back, he's writing on the ninth commandment of the Decalogue. The moral principle of this commandment reappears in the New Testament in an entirely different setting. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, Colossians 3, 9 through 10. Here the appeal for honesty is not based upon the fear of penalty, but upon the incongruity of doing anything so unbecoming to the believer's new nature in Christ. This is not Mosaic law but an example of what it means to be in law to Christ. Which is the literal meaning of under the law to Christ in 1 Corinthians 9.21. He gets it. If you can't get beyond your exegesis to see the essence of the new covenant being brought to bear in what the great apostle is communicating here, then you need to ask yourself, what is keeping my eyes from seeing this? Are you seeing the New Testament with new covenant eyes? Do you have your new covenant spectacles on when you consider the theology of 1 Corinthians 9.21? Now we're going to have a pop quiz. This will be a fill-in-the-blanks type of quiz. I will quote a passage of scripture with one word missing, and you will have to supply the missing word in order to pass this quiz. <laughs> to them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but blank the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. When I asked, when I began, I asked two questions concerning 1 Corinthians 9.21. What is the point of the parentheses? What do we learn here about the focus of law in the New Testament? Sometimes it helps to have things pointed out. My son who's here has what I call fighter pilot vision, 2010. He'll say, you see that deer? Nope. Happens lots of times. You see that turkey? Nope. And he'll be pointing, and I'll get behind him. I'm looking down his arm and his finger, and I'm looking at him. Nope. Might be 200 yards out. We've got to cut that distance in half. He's like, oh, okay. It helps to have things pointed out. That stretched out arm and that pointing index finger. When in doubt about where the North Star is, known as Polaris, or Alpha Ursi Minoris on the tail of the Little Dipper, the Little Bear, 
Because it's the brightest star in Ursa Minor, it helps to line up two other stars from Ursa Major, part of the Big Bear, Big Dipper, to the end of the handle. This is from an astronomer. The main clue to where the North Star is is the Big Dipper. The North Star is at the end of the handle of the Little Dipper. It's hard to find the Little Dipper without first finding the North Star. Normally you find the Big Dipper and then sight along the two stars at the end of the bowl of the Big Dipper and the North Star is almost in line with these two stars but not exactly. The, the two stars in the Big Dipper, which is not strictly speaking a constellation. We've got technical here. This is, not, this is free. Okay. It's an asterism, part of a constellation. There's two stars, and they have names for them, Dubhe and Mirak. We're going to use that for a moment. You might want to make a note of this. There will be a quiz immediately following this session. But there's a related historical fact here. When you line up Dubhe and Mirak, you find the North Star. It pointed to Christ. It is not Christ plus this or Christ plus that. It is Christ. Do you point where the Old Covenant Law points? If the Old Covenant Law is thought of as the star Mirac, and you, you, the epistle of Christ, are the star Dubhe, are both of you pointing to the same Polaris? Do you line up? You look back over your shoulder. Where's the law pointing? Am I pointing the same way? You better be. Are you searching around for something to point to that looks like the old covenant law? While that law itself typifies and prefigures and foreshadows Christ and him alone. It's fulfilled by Christ. It does not point to some new law code that you can latch on to to replace that which is gone. And how do you point to Christ? Hmm. How do you point to Christ? Do you hesitate to point to your own heart? Do you believe the promise of the new covenant that has been fulfilled to you and in you? Why would you point hither, thither, and yon when God said, I'll write it in their heart? Somebody says, where's the law? Where's Christ? If he's not in you, we need to talk. When you point to the new covenant law, pointing to Christ, you are also pointing to freedom. Freedom from the law covenant, the covenant of the slave. This is no underground railroad. This is the inner ground railroad. Oh, and by the way, alternate lyrics exist for follow the drinking gourd. I'm not making this up. Follow the risen Lord. Follow the risen Lord. The best thing the wise man say, follow the risen Lord. 
That's good theological counsel. Put a D on the end of law, and you've got it. Point to the Lord, and you point to what the old covenant law pointed to, and at the same time, you point to the one who freed you from it. Knox Chamblin, covenant theologian, and Sumner Osborne, dispensational theologian, get it. How about some New Covenant theologians getting on board? New Covenant theology should, in the very nature of the case, be incarnational theology. We should be incarnational theologians leading the way, pointing to Christ like no other system that the world has ever seen. Incarnational theology, the inness of the New Covenant. Incarnation is what drives it. In Christ, Christ in you. It's a drum beaten by every author in the New Testament, coming from the promises of the old. New covenant theology should be Pentecostal theology in the very best biblical theological sense. Is your theology incarnational? and Pentecostal. Do you believe that the new covenant has been ratified and inaugurated? Do you believe that the promises of the new covenant are being fulfilled today? Do you believe that the new covenant is woven through the very fabric of the New Testament? Do you believe that the newness of the new covenant is more much more than of a merely renewed old covenant. The law scholars of the first century AD were very concerned about getting an answer to the question concerning the greatest commandment of the law. Scholars today seem quite preoccupied with their disagreements about identifying the law of Christ. They may have that question on their list to take to glory to find the answer there. I don't know if you have a list. I have a long list. So that may be one of the questions some of us you have on your list to take to glory and you know, get in line for the Paul line. You know, did you write Hebrews, uh, the Jesus line? What were you scribbling in the sand? You know, it may be on your list. However, just as an electromagnetic pulse brings your electronics and your digital stuff to an end, wipes them out, you might as well think about your questions as being written on an Etch-a-Sketch pad. Because the time is coming when you're standing there with that Etch-a-Sketch pad and all your carefully noted questions when the glory of the new covenant shakes this creation and this etch-a-sketch question is shaken, it will be gone. And you will be prostrate before the glory of the new covenant himself. If you don't approach passages like this with presuppositions like this, 
If you are not driven in your study of Scripture to comprehend, to come to grips with the essence of the New Testament, the essence of the New Covenant, the heartbeat of the authors that are there, this inness, this mutual interiority, if you don't do it, who will? Are you seeing the New Testament with New Covenant eyes or not? Are your New Covenant spectacles on? Are you pointing to Christ when the law is sought? If not, then you are not pointing with a new covenant finger, nor are you pointing in a new covenant direction. If you don't preach this, who will? Do you get the point of the parenthesis? Do you see the focus of this New Testament passage? Get your new covenant spectacles on. Start seeing the New Testament with new covenant eyes. We're in something. It's not that law that, we, that they're under. In Christ. In Lord to Christ. What does that mean? Well, if you understand the New Covenant, you understand something about what that means. And you don't look any further. Um, just a couple questions. You, you've done some great work here, Jack, and we... Um, we've all benefited from it. You really have. Um, Romans 2. Just wondered if you might want to comment, uh, well, uh, three things here, if you can do three at once. One, uh, the end of verse 13, if we follow the parenthesis that we have in the NIV at least, we pick up again with verse 16. And so, do you want to comment on the question of future justification that might be implied in that. Uh, second, you made the comment that there's nothing here that would imply anything less than complete obedience, something to that effect, but yet he does have here the law, uh, I mean the conscience excusing or accusing. That would seem to indicate that. Right. And then one that uh, Let's see. In verse, somebody else has just asked me this in verse 14 um, of Romans 2. Uh, they do by nature. If this is a new covenant passage, why would it not say spirit? Would not say what? Spirit. Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Right. Good questions. I'm going to take them one at a time. Number one, the issue of future justification. If you read... Uh, N.T. Wright, and also Simon Gathercole, who has critiqued the new view, you know that this is a big issue. And some people might be nervous that you're giving away the farm, you're buying into their package if you allow for future justification here. I don't think that's the case, or I wouldn't have said what I did. I'm, I, I understand the issue. I don't think you can rule future justification so easily out of hand in this passage. The issue here is do we agree with God's judgment to come? The that's when I said eschatology. That when I said eschatology, I'm buying into that there is a judgment to come that our behavior comports and complies with. We line up with that. We don't disagree with the judgment God is going to render. Our conscience is in tune with that. So it's not a past judgment that our conscience is lined up with. It's also an eschatological judgment. All that being said, that doesn't 
give away the farm to the uh, new view. Um, I, I'm just going to stop there on that issue. The other issue of incomplete obedience because of the accusing along with the paired with the excusing. As a believer, do you sin? Does your conscience provoke you to confess, to repent, to be cleansed from that sin? Are you obedient when you do that? Does Romans 8, 1 through 4 go away because Christians sin? Read Romans 8, 1 through 4. Read 1 John chapter 1. Read 1 John chapter 3. That complete obedience isn't ours to begin with. It is fulfilled in us because it has been fulfilled for us. Just because we sin does not mean we are completely disobedient. Our obedience is in agreeing with God's analysis of our behavior, repenting and confessing of it and being cleansed by it. Our obedience, at the end of the day, though, has already been rendered. Our conscience functions in line with that. So that would be my response. I understand the problem. And by the way, I don't care how you come into this passage or how you come out, you're going to have problems. Some, something's going to have less problems, and we're all going to have lists of questions. The third view about nature. Now, some of you may not understand it until you read the literature, and the translations are very little help here. It's a punctuation issue. Where did, where did, what is nature about? What does it go with? What I'm going to share with you is what is found in most of the literature that I cited earlier, especially Simon Gathercole and others. That when you see this about the nature, which have not the law by nature, because they're Gentiles, because by nature, by birth, they don't have the law, because of who and what they are, comma, do. It's not that they do by nature, it's that they don't have the law by nature. And when you read the literature, you find that if you want to use that as an argument not to see New Covenant Gentiles here, it's not convincing. And even if I grant it, it could go either way, you're not going to solve or resolve anything by that. You certainly aren't going to persuade me. And so Gathercall and others will argue that by nature should go with what went before. Um... Fred, fair? Okay. In the First uh, Corinthians nine twenty one passage, um, even if you grant that uh, preposition should be translated in, which sounds fine with me, it's in the law of Christ. You seem to have moved to a position that says that what it really means is in Christ, which you elaborated on, on the interiority. But it's in the law of Christ. What does it mean? Is it just mean, is it just another way of saying in the in Christ? Or is there a law of Christ that we are in? And what does it mean to be in it? Less, <clears throat> pardon me, Les Bollinger. Good question for your first Bunyan conference. The word, and I should have brought this out, is a cultural term that is used many times. The only other place that's used in scripture is in Acts, a lawful assembly, lawful or legal. So if you were going to translate it strictly as cultural usage, the street, 
the language of the street, you would translate it, we are legal in Christ. We are lawful in Christ. There is no the here. You need to drop that. There are places where it is in the law of God, under the law, with, with the article reduplicated in front of both by way of emphasis. And there's none of that here. There are places in Scripture where it says the law of Christ. And I'm not going to back off on where you should point if you're asked where the law of Christ is. If you say the law of Christ is love, some people, they point to this commandment, that commandment, this list of commandments, the whole New Testament. What's going on here? You don't have a law code, and you, neither do you have the right to single out a commandment as if this is the greatest commandment of the New Testament, and therefore this constitutes the law of Christ, the authors of the New Testament. God doesn't make it that way for you, and so we have the law of Christ is love. What is he? Point to love. <laughs> you got me preaching again. <laughs> point to love. <laughs> you better point to him. But anyway, let me take it a step further. That compound word that in the book of Acts is translated rightly in a cultural sense. Paul ain't doing that here. Paul borrows that term and puts it here in this context and loads it with theological baggage of necessity because of what he's doing in this context. He ain't just talking about us being legal or lawful here. We are in something that could, that could never be said of total contrast with the Old Covenant. And so if you think of theological loan words where Paul was, it's the only place it's ever used in this way. And Paul takes that word from their culture and drops it in here like a theological bomb in this parenthesis. I'm not this, and I'm not that, but I'm this, and because I'm this, I can do this and that when I'm on the mission field. Does that help? Okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> David Morris, uh, Jack, I thank you, brother, for both sessions and for what you've shared. Along the lines of really your introduction, when you made the point that uh, as we read the New Testament through New Covenant glasses, and I thank you for that aspect of your introduction too, because that's a, a great challenge and caveat to us who claim to believe in New Covenant theology. There's a statement of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, and uh, this has got to be question answer, so I'm going to try to make my comment a question, okay? <laughs> mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians seven nineteen, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. C.K. Baird in his commentary on 1 Corinthians make, makes a great point about this. The Jew who would have heard Paul's words would have immediately protested. But Paul, circumcision is one of the commandments of God we're called to keep. But here through New Covenant eyes, it's obvious that Paul is speaking about a different canon for the believer under the, new, under the new covenant. Circumcision was under the old, commanded Abraham, commanded Israel, but now there's a new canon. But in line really, I guess with Les's question, I would say here we have the codified canonic, canonical aspect of what we're under or what we're in, if you will. Okay, and with that in view, sometimes when we speak of Christ, we also don't want to give the appearance of turning away from or moving away from the authoritative canon Christ has given the new covenant believer. 
Uh, can you address that a little bit? Yes. Maybe following up a little bit on what Les had said. That's an interesting verse that almost seems to tie into Romans 2 with the requirement for complete obedience. You can have circumcision, it's not going to do you any good. What matters is you obey God. And partial obedience, nobody gets into heaven with that, do they? The keeping of the commandments of God. So number one, you have an emphasis on obedience. Whenever I read that, I am so thankful that my obedience isn't what, what God requires or what merits it, because, or for you, any of us. We would have no righteousness. It's his obedience. He has already obeyed before me. That always must be borne in mind. The keeping of the commandments of God, which is what he did, and he didn't do it for himself. John's going to be addressing that in another session. But take that one step further. We still have to keep the commandments of God. The Lord and the lawgiver. He is the law. But it's not just what he says. It's not just what is written. I know there's a concern. There's, a, there's a, almost a paranoia about somehow being labeled an antinomian and, and the concern for the written word in the canon. And that, believe me, I'm with you. But at the end of the day, if we're all sitting here pointing hither, thither, and yon, when the question comes up, what is the law? Where's the Ark of the Covenant? So, yes, we should be obeying these commandments and preaching them. And the folks at Wayside Gospel Chapel tell you, I do that. When I come to a passage and we're commanded to do something, the Lord has spoken. He is the law. It's his word. But let me take that one step further. Whatever you see here in what we call special revelation, don't rule out incarnational theology. He is the Lagos. And what that means is one of the most profound subjects when John opens his gospel with that. As the Lagos, as the, he reveals, Everything that can be known of God in bodily form. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. He is the Lagos. Doesn't that include law? Amen. Don't hesitate to point to him. It's not this and that. This, what comes from his mouth, yes. What he inspires to his apostles, yes. But we don't point in multiple directions. The Jew didn't in the Old Testament. The New Covenant believer shouldn't now. Point to the Lagos. You got them both. <laughs> I don't know if that helps, but that's not antinomianism. But my problem with them is they don't point to Christ. Anti-Christianism. They're the ones that should be concerned. If they're pointing hither, thither, and yon, and pointing at a, some law code that they have constructed out of their neuroses, they're not pointing to Christ. What does that tell you? What does that say? What did the Father say on the Mount of Transfiguration? Goodbye, Moses. Goodbye, Elijah. He is it. All of it. Fullness. Lagos embraces law. So if you say the law of Christ, he is that. And he has spoken. It's him, though. If you're, you're pointing here. We're, we're, Christ is here, though. There's a quote from Erasmus. I'll just throw this. This is a freebie. I'm probably not going to get it quite right because it's translated. And I have it in the front of one of my Greek New Testaments. And his, his, the love for the Greek New Testament. He says, here 
you will see Christ being born, living, dying, healing, teaching, rising. Here you will see him better than if he was right before your eyes. And so the word of God, if you, it has that Christ is presented to us. Point where the law points. <laughs> Another David. <laughs> All right, yeah, and again, thanks, uh, Jack. We obviously really appreciate uh, all your work and so on David Painter um, hey, Jack um, <clears throat> you had mentioned in uh, in your first talk uh, about a veil being over their hearts um, I just wonder if what you would think if we you know it, do you think there's a distinction between a veil being over simply their hearts and over their minds You ready for the answer? I, I don't think that distinction would have been so obvious to a first century Jew. I don't think in Hebrew thought that they sliced and diced man into different aspects, that heart and mind are aspects, it's more in them, in, in their inner being. But the veil is over them. There's a different emphasis. So if you said there's a veil over their mind, yes. Is there a veil over their heart? Yes. Okay. The language is chosen and it's just a nuance of Hebrew thought that is there. They cannot see it. You see, there's blinders on their eyes, you'd be saying the same thing. They can't see it, they can't understand it, they can't believe it while that condition persists. It's all true. I think it's all involved. Okay. So I think it, the difference is just a matter of emphasis, and, it, and, and uh, both would be true. Okay. So you're, you're saying it's, regardless, it's of comprehension. Yes. Like Peter saying, gird up the loins of your minds. Well, you have the same issue when God says, I'm going to write my law in their mind or in their heart? Yeah, both. Okay? Okay. <clears throat> the other thing I was wondering about... Um, Let's see if I can get this. Um, you'd, you'd mentioned uh, in your other, uh, you'd mentioned a Colossians 3 passage there. And I was also thinking of uh, Rome, the Ephesians 4, 19 through 24 passage where eventually it says, you know, it talks about, uh, you know, where we put on then true righteousness and holiness. <clears throat> which kind of lays the groundwork for my question. My question is uh, for the unregenerate Gentile, um, what text would you use or do you, would you use any text to describe um, their, their understanding of morals of of you know some kind of an ethic because obviously unregenerate man has some comprehension of that so is there a text you would use for that yeah there's more than one 
Um, Romans chapter 1 is an example, but you have to tie that into the creation account. And we did the surgery on Adam, and you know what's there. It's the image of God. You start with man with a vitiated, defaced image of God, facing the general revelation, natural revelation of God. And that's what's going on in Romans chapter 1. Oh, yeah, they know. They suppress it. All you need to have is the image of God, defaced, vitiated as it is from the fall, and an ability so that they know from general revelation and deny it and suppress it and continually go into this whirling cesspool spiral downward. Okay, thanks. Okay. Uh, just one other thing, and this is sort of a, a comment type question. Uh, you know, I really appreciated your, um, you know, thoughts on the Greek preposition uh, in, and um, I just wonder if you had also connected that, since there's probably a couple Baptists here, if you'd connected that as the um, 1911 or 1901, I guess it is, uh, American Revision Committee went through and corrected the six passages where the Greek preposition appeared with the, sub, with the word baptism. And the King James incorrectly in each of those places translates it. So does the NIV, even though in their 1976 interlinear, in the interlinear part had it right, but when they did the translation, they purposely made it wrong. And the American Revision Committee fixed the European revision and each place instead of saying with water it said in water. I wondered if you'd ever noticed that. And that's just Let me see if I have this straight question. Dave. Go ahead. I just got homework. Oh. <laughs> In the 1881 RV yeah. it was with. It was In the with. 1901 ASV I, I have them both. I'm going to check yeah. this out. I, I'm not sure what went on there mm -hmm. or what's in the literature, but it's good. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would have to say this, regardless of what I find, with, as in within, mm -hmm. can be a legitimate translation of the preposition. It, it, it can be and in some places is, but what they point out is they, they actually, there's, there's a list and I could probably copy it for you and uh, email it to you sometime. Uh, there, the uh, 1901 American Committee made uh, ha had listed what their revisions were and then had sometimes explanations of why they did certain revisions. I have that. This is one of those places yeah. you'll find it in there. Okay. Even in the uh, sense in the culture in Acts chapter uh, 19 verse 38, anyway, where that word enomoth, in-law, is used, it's the idea of, in other words, the law sets boundaries. You have to think of it that way. Here's the boundaries. If you're within those boundaries, you're lawful and legal if you're outside. of. The, and so the idea of being within, that's what the um, nuance that is associated with even the cultural term. You are within the boundaries that have been set by the law if you do this with your assembly or if you do that. Hi, Hi. Uh, I'm Patrick Slagle. First off, I just wanted to commend you. You did a terrific job. Um, I have been studying through the continuity and discontinuity and all that stuff. And before I say what I'm going to say, 
I'm not a covenant theologian. I'm just studying. I haven't come to a position. Um, as dealing with your first message uh, with Romans 2, as I look at Romans, as you said, the word law is used many times in that book. And as I look at it, it seems that each time the word law is used, that the word law refers to the Mosaic law. Um, dealing with the fact that you say that Romans 2 deals with the New Covenant believer, is there anything contextual in Romans, in the context of Romans, that leads you to believe that the law written on the New Testament believer's heart is something other than the Mosaic law? Yes. Okay. Number one, if you think for one moment that every usage of the word law in the New Testament is the Mosaic law, you're wrong. Uh, you need to go crack, crack the books a little bit more. That's not true. Go look at the lexicons. Not true. Let me give you an example where this is not the Mosaic law. First one that comes to my mind. Let's see if I can find it right here. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. That's why. Verse 21 of Romans 7, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. That is not Mosaic law. It's a principle. All I have to do is show one example. You cannot say every time it's Mosaic law. That needs to be determined by the context, and it's an easy, simplistic way out for a lot of people who want to drive that boat. Don't work. Uh, as we say, that dog don't hunt. Okay? The, um, what was the next part of that? If the word, I need to be refreshed on that. Yes, yes. One thing that will not... I can repeat it here. Do I find anything that would indicate that the law written on the New Covenant believer's heart is not the Mosaic law? Okay, yes. It's as if some people have the idea that there's a Holy Spirit tattoo of the Decalogue. Written within the pericardium. Do you understand what that means? Sam Waldron argues for this. In essence. The Sabbath too. That's one of my problems with some of the writings. I've said they say, accept the Sabbath. You don't have the option to do that. That law and that Sabbath stand and fall together. And then when you read it back into the heart, if that eternal moral law is flatlined back into the heart of creation, the Sabbath of necessity goes with it. Oh, yeah, they're going to argue for that passionately. They're not going to give that up. You'll pry it from their cold, dead fingers. They'll go to the grave with that. You need to understand the motivation and the passion. It must be. You cannot have the Sabbath begin at Sinai and end at Calvary. It's all about the fourth commandment. Not 10 minus 1 equals 9. So, that being said, the idea that what God writes in our hearts, and I think Paul's language here, if he had just said, 
in capital Greek letters, I wrote the law, the Mosaic law. I wrote the Decalogue on your heart in Romans, and you tie that back to Jeremiah 31. I wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't be having this conversation. He didn't do that. When Paul shifts and, and, and he, he, he uh, plays on words, and when he loads it like this, the works of the law. What, what's the works of the law? What did the law intend you to do? I just say, it leads us to Christ. And they're showing that. They've been led to Christ. And they respond that way. I don't have a problem. You want to say the law is written on the heart, the work of the law is written on the heart. You're still talking about law, but what's the law now? Point to the law. You're not pointing back to Moses. You're not talking about a law code. It's new. What's new about it? It's a person. It's incarnational. It's Christ. It's not two tablets of the law stapled on. It's Christ. Yeah, that's, I don't know, is that fair? Okay, thanks. <laughs> Gary Judge. The question I have is, if you're talking about the Gentiles being justified here, would this passage allow for the justification of Gentiles prior to the Christian era? Could we say that the work of the law was written on the hearts of those prior to Paul's writing the book of Romans or implying that he is referring to the new Christian era that is about to be inaugurated or has been inaugurated? Not based on what's here. I don't think that goes there, Gary. To go back in salvation history so far, in other words, are you going to go back to creation? Well, we're back to the same thing. It doesn't say creation. So where did, what is it and where did they get it? And does this passage give any suggestion whatsoever that Paul is going there? Um, or is this passage at that point in salvation history he's saying something he could not have said before the only way around this and I'll throw this out you may want to run with this one is if you see the blessings of the new covenant including that blessing fulfilled in every saved child of God from Adam on reading it back in like prospectively That'd be a tough one. That's the only way I could see you could do it, but it still has to be New Covenant because it was promised in the New Covenant. And if it was already true and was already being fulfilled, it wouldn't have been prophesied and promised, and I would still have an issue with it. Tough one. Good question, though. Yes. Right, I'm Steve Cowden, and I also want to register my great appreciation for your both your messages. You certainly accomplished at least one item that you wanted to is stirred me to thinking. Um, <clears throat> also, uh, I took some classes from Sam Waldron, so I could, I haven't listened to his tape, but I can, I can hear him saying those things, uh, okay. and I absolutely don't agree with him at all. Um, my question, I guess, is this. I, I seem to, uh, uh, I don't know, there were some impressions that I got, and so I might have to sort of ask the question, part A, part B. Um, I seem to have the sense that uh, that Gentiles never <clears throat> do anything good. 
and we're not talking about in terms of justification or up to par with, with being accepted of God, but uh, I remember as a little boy stealing some money from my mother to buy an ice cream cone. I knew that was wrong. And uh, most of the time I didn't do that, so I didn't steal lots of times because I knew it was wrong. Um, <clears throat> so in light of that very real experience that we all have all the time, uh, my question is from Romans one uh, thirty-two. And I'm reading from the uh, American Standard 1901. Hmm. <clears throat> Who knowing the ordinance of God, that they that practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but also consent with them that practice them. <clears throat> My question is, what did they know? What is this ordinance of God? And does this passage, which is in the context of Romans and Paul's argument, have any bearing on interpreting verses 14 through 15? Does it have any bearing on the next chapter where we were looking? Right. Okay. The first part of that, I'm going to have to respond to in two ways. Number one, if you're talking about Romans 1, 18 to the end of the chapter, I don't see anything there where they do anything good. Even when they know something that's good, their motive and what they do with it is so tainted by sin. There, there is no good there. And, and you have to bear in mind, whether you see it in Romans 1, 18 to the end of the chapter or in chapter 2, by the time we get to chapter 3, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Not me, Paul. So if that's not what he's presenting concerning the entire world in, ch in chapter 1, and for the Jews' mind, yeah, I agree about that, the, 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 the uh, pagan, unclean, heathen Gentiles. And then he turns to them. And what about you? That's what we need to do in our evangelism and in our apologetic. So that they never do anything good. Yes, they never do anything good. I don't know, some of you I know have heard Dr. Gerstner on this. Bad, bad people, bad, good people, good, bad people, and only one good, good person. So they, they might do good, bad things and bad, good things, but they're still tainted by sin. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. God's assessment of everyone outside of Christ. There's only one who does good, and that's his son, Jesus Christ. So that they never do anything good. But, and we look out there and we see, well, you know, there's some nice people. There's some people who seem to really sacrifice. They're always out helping somebody. And they're not even a Christian. Sometimes the heathen out there, they put us to shame. They do so many good works. But they're not good works. That's the problem. And we're back to that same issue of where they bring up Plato and all this kind of stuff and these moral Gentiles. And that issue, it won't seem to go away. And where are we getting these moral Gentiles who sometimes do what looks like some good things and that that's what Paul is confronting this self-righteous Jew with? And this, what are you talking about? All right, he, they do some good things sometimes. So do I. But they don't have what I have. See, he's got to get that away from you can't have a level playing field of partial immorality and partial morality here. It doesn't matter if they sometimes do anything good, but they don't. But even if they did, you've undercut Paul's argument, and the self-righteous Jew is still standing there with the Mosaic Code, with his special thing. 
So oh, I think a lot of ink has been wasted on something. I would say that doesn't even matter. And if it did matter, Paul doesn't prove anything. He doesn't accomplish anything. So are you going to go to the neighbor next door who's you're trying to evangelize and you're going to confront that person with keeping up with the Joneses with the other guy next door? Well, he's a good person. He does some good things and you do some bad things. And so we have a relative morality. That's what we're going to... Con no, we're going to confront them with Jesus Christ on the cross. We're going to confront them with a supernatural righteousness that exceeds anything any of us ever could or would do. It doesn't matter whether they do some things that look good. That's, we're looking to our own eyes, not New Covenant eyes when we do that. And so my concern is what, what we do to the diatribe at this point in Paul. What we do in an evangelistic, what are we confronting them with? Paul's confronting this self-righteous Jew with a new covenant Gentile who because of what Christ has done for us and to us and in us, Romans 8, 1 through 4, the law is fulfilled in us. Because of him. That helpful? Okay. Okay, uh, yeah, that's what I said last time. But um, at the end of the day, though, I know out, out there in the literature, whether you're talking natural law or the proponents of the eternal moral law or people who really aren't part of that, that is the, the, the moral pagan is the predominant view. And so I understand when people struggle with that because we're inundated with it in our research and our studies. But there's not one word about partial obedience here. There isn't one word that ties it back into creation. So how do you get from here to here? Connect the dots for me. The passage isn't doing that. And so I struggle. Hello, sir. Thank you. Um, my name is Antonio Romano. Um, this is my first Bunyan conference. So if this question is stupid, and I'm, I mean this, if this is a dumb question, forgive me. Mm -mm. Um, Ain't none of them. I, and I'll lay this in context very quickly. I, I am New Covenant because I see every other system making Christ bow down to something else. Dispensationalism makes him bow down to Israel in, in my thinking. Covenant theology makes him bow down to the law. And I think this is what you're saying, but I want to make sure that I'm correct because I want to be a preacher and I want to be right. Is Christ's righteousness that is imputed to me is it his obedience to the old covenant law which I think I don't need I'm not a Jew is that incorrect and isn't it his death in other words what is it is it just the fact that he is beautiful and precious and righteous and perfect and that by his death in Isaiah 53 he makes many to be accounted righteous or, or is it his, because on, if I'm incorrect, I want to know. Or is it the fact that he had to obey the law and that is imputed to me? And, that's, and if that's the case, that's fine. I just, I don't understand that. And so I, I think what you're saying, when you say Christ, that, that's, that's, that sounds right to me. And I just want to make sure that I understand that correctly, that it's just Christ. You know, you look at like Psalm 15 and, you know, who's going to dwell with him? Nobody's going to dwell with him. Nobody does these things. Everybody's wrong. Everybody's wicked, but Christ is perfect. Christ is righteous. He is that for me. So what is it, what is it that is imputed to me? That, that's, that's my question. 
Good question, and you're at the right conference. <laughs> and I don't want to steal John's thunder because he's going to be dealing with this, this very issue. But I would point you to a couple of things. When the New Testament says, He is our righteousness, the person of Christ, He is, just like you and I are, He is what He does. It isn't this plus that, it's a package. The person and finished work, He is what He does. Prophet, priest, king, it's a package. And so that's why when you read the literature, John's going to, I'm sure, deal with this active, passive. They all struggle with that. Those are labels. So you can throw the labels away. Did he, could he have died as a babe, shed his blood, and that was enough? No. He did exactly what was needed, precisely what he needed. He didn't have to live that life and endure the contradiction of sinners against himself from the manger to the cross. But he did. That obedience under the old covenant. No, you're not under the old covenant. The only reason you're not is because of what he did. He nailed it to his cross for you. He was born for you. He lived for you, obeyed for you, died for you, was buried for you, rose from for you, ascended for you, is seated for you. Our blessings in the heavenlies for you. Don't slice and dice it. It's a package. The glory of the new covenant. Got me preaching again. Too, too easy. <laughs> oh, boy. Going to be a tough one now. No, no. I've heard a lot of this before. Thank God of Think, think Tank last, uh, last year. And I really appreciate uh, what you've nuanced and uh, brought to the table here. Incarnational theology. Interesting. Uh, most of us think in terms of, you know, and I, I see this basically, you hear the covenant guys uh, really stress on law because of ethics, the issue of ethics. And, and dispensationalists, you don't hear that thunder as much at all. It's, I think it's somewhat subdued. And I think that's why a lot of them uh, uh, lead towards legalisms and different forms of manners and all that type of thing. But if incarnational uh, uh, theology is, is viable as a system, uh, or I should say biblically, uh, and I believe it is, question that for a moment. What are the implications as far as ethics go? Because ultimately that's where we end up with. And I think ultimately we, we beat the covenant theologians at their game. We prove that ethics according to the new covenant works. Works in the hearts of the individuals and it pleases God. Uh, so could you just give me a little idea uh, or maybe perhaps all of us a little idea of the profound, what you may think is profound or not so profound implications of incarnational uh, theology with respect to ethics. Morris Bergeron, Mo Bergeron. Yes. Watch out. <laughs> yep. On the one hand, we read in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Oh my unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. How much theology can Paul pack in a one verse? It, but it's in Christ Jesus. Still good works. There's your ethic. But it's 
him and us, and us in him, and he has foreordained that we should do and behave and respond in certain ways, and they're good works, but it's in Christ Jesus. It's still incarnational theology, isn't it? Is that along the lines of where you were heading with that, Mo? Is that along the lines of where you were? Okay. Okay. Romans 2.13 Who show the work of the law written in their hearts. Up until this afternoon, I always thought that meant the work of the law is in Romans 4.15, the law worketh wrath, and that the purpose and function of the law was to work wrath. I understood the word conscience here, therefore their conscience bearing witness accusing and excusing and I viewed conscience being wedded to law at Mount Sinai for the purpose of magnifying or bringing out sin and the accusing and excusing was the law functioning as a pedagogue and there wasn't anything to bless so it had to curse and it had to curse because we were under its curse. And nothing the, gen nothing the Jew could do could bring him out from under the law to set his conscience free because he couldn't keep the terms of the covenant. He couldn't bring it a perfect sacrifice to cover its sins, nor could he bring it the perfect righteousness that God demanded. So he was under law. And the freedom of the New Testament is the freedom of the conscience being delivered from the law where it no longer is an accuser or excuser it can neither bless us or curse us the law can't touch us we are in totally free from it it has we our lord learned earned every blessing the law promised endured every cursing that it threatened is that okay yes where are we going with this that's all okay supper time <laughs> He can have the last word. <laughs> Maybe just for a moment. The, um, you will find uh, the view that in this chapter, in this section of Romans 2, Paul is not just confronting the Jew, but the Gentile, which he'd already done in chapter 1. And you still end up with what does he hope to accomplish with the Jew and the law? And maybe I didn't make the emphasis clear enough. If that's the case here with the law and the Gentile, then why, at the end of the chapter with circumcision and the Gentile. So if it's not a new covenant Gentile here, how easy is it to deny that it's a new covenant Gentile at the end of chapter 2 with this heart circumcised by the Spirit? And the two are not two separate things. I don't think you can separate them. So what, what this, whatever this is, and we could say whether we know or can identify clearly what work of the law and how that connects to works of the law, and there are those many who would say there's no difference between the singular and the plural as it's used in the New Testament by way of emphasis. So what is going on here is the same as what is going on there looked at a different way. New Covenant Gentiles in regard to the effect when we're confronted with Christ. 
then the spirit, a hard circumcision, what does it do? What does it mean to have our heart circumcised? I don't know. That's tough, John. <laughs> okay. yeah. Thank you all for the good discussion.